hear these words from the book that we love. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her, found Hagar, by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called on the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing, for she said, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Beer Lahai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, a friend of ours, uh, she recently, over this past year, she took one of those 23andMe genetic tests. I realize I've opened with 23andMe before. Let this be like another cautionary tale against ever doing that. The silly 23. For those of you who don't know what it is, you basically put spit in a test tube and you send it into this big organization who then sends you back like this big printout of like your genetic heritage and who other people you could be related to, etc. Uh, but a family friend of ours did that and she discovered a family secret um, after she did the 23andMe test. She found uh, that her great-grandfather the one whom in her family tree was her great-grandfather, wasn't actually her great-grandfather. And that actually her great-grandfather was her great-grandfather's best friend. Yikes. And, um, and the, all, of course, all the folks who lived at that time are now, are now dead. And there's no way, and it, it, it's, it's, so it's this revealing of this family secret. And she, in conversation with her family and surely folks who knew uh, that couple... Um, that her great grandparents, they were weighing like what you know what what was going on here, and they came up that there are two alternatives of this family secret, two alternatives of things that could have happened. Number one is probably the place where, judging by the noise this room just made, is the place where y your mind went is that there was there was adultery that her great grandmother cheated on her with her great grandfather's best friend, um, and that's and that's that's the story. But there's another alternative that, and they we don't they don't know the, the answer this. Uh, like I said, everyone who, who went through this is dead. But the other alternative 
is that there was a secret agreement that her great-grandfather could not have children, so he asked his closest friend to play that role, so to speak, to pinch hit for him. And uh, it, it's, it's that, that second option to you, it sounds outlandish to me, and I, I would say it probably sounds outlandish to, to, to many of us, but it's actually not impossible. And like I said, I, we can't, we can't, I can't give you a verdict on what happened. But as they're like, they're like, it could have been one of these two things. Is that second option possible? Could something like that have happened in the past hundred years? Could this story that we just read from the Bible about a family going far out of its way to have children, could something like that have happened closer to us? Perhaps Sarai's response to her barrenness isn't so distant as we may think. Uh, after all, there, there are few things in the human experience that cause more desperation than the inability to have children. Throughout the centuries, people have used technology, institutions, cultural structures, surrogates, in order to find their way around this incredibly painful reality of infertility. Um, and, it's, and even if, if you, you're here this morning and that you, you, you'd say that desperation, you've never felt it before. There are others who you may know who felt it more. There are also many in our, in our, in our own culture who like, feel a, a kind of desperation like this where they want to have kids, but they can't because they don't have a marriage partner. <laughs> like a, a, a growing segment in the population, folks around my age who are involuntarily childless. I don't know if you've ever heard that. Involuntary childlessness is a huge, is a growing demographic in our time. You'll see that in, in all this, there's pain, there's desperation. People go into extreme measures to try and have children. And you'll see that this story is behind it. There's a lot of pain and there's a lot of desperation. Almost like, it's almost like the Bible knows how awful, how awful it can be at times to be a human being. Right? Like these are the, the, the ups and downs, the drama of life the kind of desperation that we feel. Um, I, I begin all this way, like, in the, in the, through the rest of the sermon, I, I'm not going to be saying, speaking very kindly about Abram and Sarai. They are not the heroes of this story. They do some things that they really should not have. Uh, but it's really important to remember that, that Sarai's desperation is one that's not hard to understand and that there's a lot of suffering and pain that leads up to the, the, what happens in, this event, in these events. We'll also see in this story that it's like a complete mess. It's a complete mess. Uh, this, this story has all the pieces to be a family drama on like an HBO series. And th this chapter could be like a whole season. It's, uh, but most importantly, what we're going to see is that God is faithful to his promises to Abram. This is a God who sees... It's a God who sees us as we live in a messy world. Uh, so let's, let's go through this, this drama. Like I said, uh, this, I'll look at the first half for a bit, the second half for a bit, and talk about how we have a God who sees. So the family drama. Uh, this, this passage, like I said, it opens with Sarai's desperation with her barrenness. Uh, she says, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. She says that in verse 2. So she attempts what looks like a simple, straightforward solution according to the institutions and practices of her own time. Having a child through her servant, through her slave, 
Hagar will stand in as a representative, as a surrogate for Sarai. Like if you see what Sarai's desire is here, she says, it may be that I shall obtain children by her, is the translation what we, we read saying. Uh, a more like literal translation of the original language would be that uh, I will be built up by her. Let Sarai will be built up by Hagar. Um, so she, th- she thinks that she can use this woman to give her children. Um, this is that's like a surrogate. So I'll give my, so she thinks I'll give this, my servant Hagar to my husband as a wife. She'll get pregnant. God's promise to Abram, which if you remember from the previous chapters, is for his, his offspring to be without number and multitude, uh, that it'll be his own son who, through whom the promises will come. She said, hey, you know, God's promise will be fulfilled now. It's like we've been in Canaan for 10 years. Nothing's, not, like nothing's happened. What shall we do? And through it, she says, I'll be built up. What could possibly go wrong? She must have thought to herself. And of course, as we'll see, everything goes wrong. Uh, and Abram just listens to his wife. Uh, he, does, there's, he doesn't have any dialogue in this early part of the story. Uh, he's like, you read it and you're like, like, no pushback at all, man? Like, no commentary whatsoever? He goes along, he goes along with, with the plan. And we're introduced to Hagar. What do we know about Hagar? Hagar, is a, she's an Egyptian, uh, which likely means, if you guys have been tracking with us as we've been going through Abram's story so far, she was probably added to their number back in Genesis 12, back when Abram and Sarai got ensnared in Egypt uh, a few chapters ago, when it says at the end of that chapter that a bunch of pe- that, uh, riches and also people were added to their group. Presumably, Hagar would have been one of those people. Uh, she's... Um, and what we see here is something really kind of dreadfully ironic um, is that Sarai, in chapter 12, Sarai was the one, if you remember the story, Abram, uh, he, he, do, he, he, he pretends that Sarai is his sister in order to make their, pa- their passage through Egypt easier. And because of that, Pharaoh takes Sarai, who is beautiful, into his harem. So Sarai was put in an un- unenviable position back in chapter 12. And that's where Hagar would have been acquired. And now, ironically, Sarai, who was put in that position, is now putting this Egyptian servant girl into a similar position to the one that she just occupied. Almost as if the pain that we sometimes cause others comes often from the pain we've experienced ourselves. And how does the plan work? Well, much to everyone's disappointment, the plan works. And the plan, what, is the, what happens when the, after the plan works? It only leads to disappointment, to blame shifting, and ultimately to abuse. Um, Hagar conceives, and she immediately looks with contempt at, at Sarai. Sarah thought, Sarai thought, oh, you know, it'll be my children through her. But, you know, the, the, which, even if it was a common cultural institution at the time, you can tell, like, the writer of this story is like, it doesn't really work the way you think it should. You think it does. Can you blame Hagar for looking with contempt at Sarai? After all, the text tells us that that Hagar is Abram's wife, and Sarai proceeds to see, seeing that Hagar has is looking at her this way, and things haven't gone the way that she, that she she was expecting to be built up, and instead she's being looked at with by contempt by the slave girl. Sarai goes ballistic at Abram. 
um, who had committed the cardinal sin of doing exactly what she said. Um, and <laughs> it's, it, 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 like I said, it's a complete mess. It's an HBO series. Um, and how does, so she, she says, Abram, the Lord judged between you and me. Uh, this, I wanted this to happen, but this happened. And what does Abram say? Thick, like tough spine, backbone, strong, like good man, hero of the faith, Abram. He says, he's like, uh, you just, your servants in your power, Hagar's in your power, you do to her whatever you please. Like, it, it's, it would have been better if he would have said nothing. It's, it's, it's him allowing, he, it's him basically green lighting Hagar doing whatever she wants, or to Sarah doing whatever she wants to Hagar. A more literal translation of what Abram says. He says, do, do to her what's right in your own eyes. So Sarai proceeds to do that, to deal harshly with her, and simply put, Hagar, or Hagar's abused by Sarai. Uh, it's the angel of the Lord that we later see in this passage, she, he says that the Lord has seen her affliction. The Lord has seen Hagar's affliction. Um, and saying that Sarai dealt harshly with her, it's not just saying that she gossiped about her or that she subtweeted her or uh, that she didn't like her sneakers or something. Like, it's saying that, no, she abused Hagar. And Hagar running away, it's important to remember, Hagar has a lot to lose by running away. Uh, she's pregnant, going off on her own into the desert. You only do that when a situation is particularly desperate. And that's the drama of this story, all that first half. Um, you can see how like uh, the HBO series material, it's just, it's wild. And to our modern ears, I think there are so many layers of this story that scandalize us that it's just dizzying, like so much of it, top to bottom. And I'll just say this, I, I don't have time to do like a full going through all the issues with, with you guys on this story, but I'll say this, if you wanted to craft a story to show why polygamy, forced surrogacy, and slavery naturally lead to evil outcomes in spite of the noblest of intentions, this is the story for you. This is a, sto this is a great story to point to, like, hey, these are, there are institutions in the Bible that are described but not prescribed. They're, they're, the, you see the story of what happens, but they're not things that are supposed to be how we all live our lives. A couple notes from, a couple th th places to draw your attention from this, this family drama. Uh, number one, in this whole arrangement, you can hear echoes of the fall from Genesis 3. Um, here, in, uh, back when Adam and Eve took, from the, the tree from the, uh, took fruit from the tree and ate it in spite of God's command not to. What are some of the similarities? One, there's a woman uh, who is deceived into finding an alternative way besides what God has given Eve, is, Eve looks towards the fruit. Sarai looks towards securing a child in a way that, is, that is, is easier, more delightful to the eyes. Both solutions seem simple and plain, but lead to chaos. Another thing that's similar between this story and Genesis 3, uh, there's a man who's passive. Uh, Abram lets Sarai go through with his plan. Abram steps back and lets Sarai abuse Hagar. Uh, this is not a man who is exercising proper responsibility putting it mildly. Another Genesis 3 similarity, there's blame shifting when the consequences come. We saw that, we saw that back with Adam and Eve, right? 
And all this behavior, this Genesis 3 behavior I'm talking about, this comes from those who are supposed to be the good guys, uh, from those who are the ones whom God told, whoever blesses you will bless, the ones who are the, certainly the main characters in this stretch of Genesis. I'd also draw your attention to the importance of seeing, of sight in this passage. There's a theme. Hagar looks with contempt at Sarai after she conceives. Abram tells Sarai to do to Hagar whatever is pleasing in her own eyes. There's a theme where humans in this story, they're humans just look at each other with suspicion and power. Which is my transition for the second half of this story. God meets Hagar. Um, and we'll see that God, he doesn't erase the chaos of Hagar's situation, but he does see her in the midst of it. Uh, so this is the first time we see in the Bible an angel, or which is just a word for messenger from God. Um, the angel of the Lord finds Hagar in the desert next to a spring of water. According to the geography, we know she's about a 10 days walk into the desert um, on the path. She's going back to Egypt, to her homeland, away from, from Sarai and Abram. Um, think about this. Uh, in all of the drama of the first half, um, no one actually speaks directly to Hagar. God is the first one that speaks to her directly through his messenger. He says her name. He asks her a question. What does that say about God in contrast to Abram and Sarai, who he sees? Uh, he asks her, uh, the, the, he her the cotton eye Joe question. Where did you come from? Where did you go? Uh, to, to Hagar, where, from where are you going? From where did you come and where are you going? And she answers that she's fleeing from her, her mistress, Sarai. And then the angel gives th basically three mini speeches in a row. I don't know if you caught that, but it says, then the, Lord, then the angel of the Lord said to her, then the angel of the Lord said to her three times. And I'll explain why I think that the structure here is meant to get our attention. The, what, the, what's the first thing that, Hagar tell, that he tells Hagar? He tells her to go back and to submit to Sarai. Uh, it's proper to see Hagar's response to this as stunned silence. Um, the, the, the three times in a row we get this formula, the angel of the Lord said to her. Usually when there's a, a begin of a, a words put together like that, then the angel of the Lord said to her. Usually that, it says that once, and then there's a conversation of a back and forth. But it happens three times in a row. As if to say, the angel of the Lord says three things to her, and she's just like, like, can't believe what she's hearing. And of course, stunned silence is probably an appropriate response to being told to go back after running 10 days away um, from a place where you've been abused. So that's his first, first thing he says. The second thing he says is he gives her a promise that's downstream from what he promised to Abram, that she will have innumerable descendants, that she and her people will be great. Still stunned, stunned silence. And then he, he, he gives her, which is, it's almost like he, the angel sings a song to her about her coming son, Ishmael. Uh, Ishmael is the first character in the Bible who's named before he's born. And the, the too long, don't read version of this song uh, is that Ishmael, he's not going to take crap from anybody. He's going to be like a wild donkey of a man. And uh, it's almost as if he's it's like talking to Hagar 
He's saying, you've been under the power of someone. Your son, however, he's not going to be overcome. You were downtrodden. Your son won't be. And somehow with this third speech, Hagar is won over. Um, and, Hagar, and then Hagar does something that it's, uh, it's, it's, it's really unique in the, pages of, in the pages of Scripture. She's the first, arguably the only, uh, character in the entire Bible who names God. She names him after this. She names him. She, she names God, uh, you are the God who sees me. And she returns. Um, there are a million different ways to draw from this story for interpretations, for arguments about ethics, about hot-button cultural issues. It, it, this, this, this is a story to draw from in talking about the complexities of abuse, of polygamy, surrogacy, slavery, um, feminism. This text has been like a, a foundational text for feminist theology. It can go a hundred different ways. All these ethical questions have their place. But what is the overriding point of this text, this, this crazy story? What's the point that undergirds anything that we should take from this story? It's that God sees. It's that God sees us. And if you don't, if you don't want to take my word for it, that that's the number one thing to take from this text, take Hagar's word for it, right? After all, this is the point that Hagar takes out of the whole episode, why she names God, names God that you're the, he's the one who sees. If you don't take my interpretation, I encourage you to take hers. And what it means is this, is that in a world filled with stories as messy as this one, in a world where men and women are looking at each other all with suspicion, abuse, neglect, God sees. God sees us. And his eyes are better than human eyes. Like, is it not, is it not stunning that Hagar is the main character in this story? This, like, this story starts with Sarai and her problems, but really by the end you realize, oh no, the, the main character in this story is actually the Egyptian slave girl. She's the mother to the wrong child. She's a cog in the machine. She's supposed to be the tool in the hands of the powerful, one to be discarded after she's been used. Yet she's the one who names God in this passage. God has his eye on her for her good in a messy world. And I hope you see how empowering this is, this story. Um, that God sees you, that God saw, sees Hagar. And again, if you hear this story and you're like, doesn't seem very empowering to me, don't take my word for it, take Hagar's. Um, Hagar finds enough power in this, enough reassurance to walk back 10 days through the desert back to, to raise her son in the, house where, in, in the house of her abuser. She finds power here. So let me speak directly to, to you all what, this, what I think the story means. To those of you who have been abused, God sees you. To those of you who have been overlooked, 
God sees you. To those of you who are cogs in the machine, whatever machine it may be, God sees you. To those of you who are just plain beat up, God sees you. To those of you who are desperate, God sees you. To those of you who hear this family story and think, sounds like my family story. My family's just messed up too. God sees you. To those of you who've been slandered and misrepresented, God sees you. God sees you. You're not alone. Hagar's not alone. Your future is in his hands. Her future is in his hands. And ultimately, we know God sees us because of Jesus Christ. We know that we're not alone because of Jesus Christ. All the things I just listed, all those questions I just posed to you guys, Jesus endured them. Uh, Jesus' own mother fled to Egypt from an abusive regime while she was pregnant with him. Right? That was, that was Mary, the mother of Jesus. Mary, or Mary Jesus, Jesus, they can relate with Hagar. And he can relate with you. He's close to you. He's near you. In these most painful, the most painful moments, the most painful things in our lives. And I want to end with this. Uh, God, he, he sees Hagar. He sees us. He also sees Ishmael. Ishmael is this kind of striking, unique character. Uh, he, God blesses the kid that no one wanted. The kid that just caused problems with his very presence. Let me, let me reword how God sees Ishmael. Uh, God sees the fierce and mean people. God blesses those whom the world is out to get. Let me reword that for you. God sees Philadelphia. He blesses the first son, the first city uh, that everyone forgets about. Did you know that at the time of the American Revolution, the population of Philadelphia was four times the size of New York City. No one films movies here, though. <laughs> Let me reword that for you. God sees the river warts. God blesses Fishtown, Kensington, Port Richmond, Bridesburg, Northern Liberties. He blesses the people who are like wild donkeys and don't take a crap from anyone. I don't know if you read the description of Ishmael and you said with me, oh yeah, Ishmael lives on my block. <laughs> of course, God calls Ishmael to people like that, people like us, to repentance. He calls us all to repentance, to humility and laying down our pride. But if God has a plan to bless and multiply Ishmael through his fierceness, then I'm, I feel compelled to say that God has a plan. We have a plan for Philadelphia and a plan for the river wards, too, because God sees us. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.